You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. It's Good Friday, the day that we remember our Savior's sacrificial death on the cross. And I can think of no better place for us to turn to this evening than Psalm 22. I would like to begin by reading the text in its entirety, and after that, we will say a prayer and dive headlong into this precious psalm. So let's start with the text. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, But you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me, and they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship, 
Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for Psalm 22. Lord, we approach it cautiously this evening, knowing that what we have before us is a mountain of a text. Lord, we know that all Scripture is breathed by God. We know that all Scripture is inspired of you. We know that it is all profitable and it is all helpful. But God, this passage, as we stand at the foot of this mountain, Lord, I pray that you would transport us to the foot of the cross. I pray that you would fill our eyes with the vision of Christ crucified tonight. Lord, I pray that you would stir our emotions, stir our hearts, that you would draw men and women to you. Lord, I pray that you would work in a powerful way through your word this evening as we we unpack this mountain of a text that you have laid before us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this feast. Lord, I pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified in every word that comes out of my mouth this evening. We pray that in everything, you would receive the most glory, the most praise, because you are worthy of everything that we have and more. And to that we say thank you. Bless this time in your word, in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, there are a handful of psalms considered messianic psalms. Some of them are clearly prophetic as they look forward to future events, much like Psalm 2. Others run parallel with the experience of the psalmist as he runs side by side with the Messiah. But then we find ourselves face to face with the rare exception of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is so rare and so unique, we can only approach it as prophetic prophecy, as as prophetic uh, uh, poetry. The superscription tells us that David is the author, and yet, as hard as David's life was, he never experienced anything that even came close to the suffering that is described here in this psalm. Several theologians and commentators have pointed out that what we have here is not a description of illness. This is not a description of things going south or things going wrong, and then the psalmist or whoever is is writing this back in the day is looking up to the Lord for help. No, what we have here described is not illness, but execution. And not just any execution, execution by crucifixion, a torturous form of capital punishment that hadn't even been invented yet by the time that David sat down to write this psalm. This sick idea of nailing a person to a cross wouldn't develop until centuries later. Many find it remarkable for David to have come up with such descriptive and poetic language that goes so far beyond his own experiences to portray the sufferings of Christ on the cross with such vivid detail. And yet, we know that behind the man, the divine author of Scripture, the one who moved men along as they participated in God's revelation, we know that it's not remarkable for him to bring David to the foot of the cross. Because he knows the future and he knows the heart of man. 
In Acts 2, Peter stood up and he declared that David was a prophet. And not just any prophet, that he very specifically wrote about Jesus, that he wrote about the Christ. Jesus himself quoted Psalm 22 twice on the cross. And the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22 with its fulfillment being found in Christ, not David. So make no mistake, what we have before us tonight is a prophetic poem about Christ, period. The New Testament connects this psalm to Jesus at least 15 times. And the extraordinary truth about this psalm is that it takes us beyond the observable events of Calvary to the thoughts and prayers of Christ while he was dying. It goes past the external to the internal. The gospel writers, all they tell us is is what happened at the cross. They could only speak to what they saw. They could say this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened. But Psalm 22 goes deeper than that. Psalm 22 tells us what Jesus was thinking as he hung on the cross and he died for our sins. And more specifically, what he focused on as the Father crushed him in the place of sinners. You will recall that Jesus hung on the cross for six hours, from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. that day. For the first half of the day, we know that Jesus primarily thought about other people. As he was led through the streets bearing his cross, he saw the women weeping after him. And he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. As the soldiers drove the nails through his hands and feet, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he hung on the cross during the first three hours, he told the thief hanging next to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And to Mary and John, he said, here is your son. And woman, here's your son. Here's son. This is is your mother. He's constantly thinking about other people. His thoughts are consumed with others from nine till noon. But at 12 o'clock, everything changed. Because that's when the darkness rolled in. For the next three hours, the father poured out his wrath against sinners upon his son. It is as if the father shut the doors around him and privately dealt with Jesus himself. When we think of God, we naturally think of light, and that's good. But scripture also ties his presence with the darkness. Psalm 18.9 says, He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. In a couple of verses after that, David says, He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. At the ratification of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, God chose not to wrap himself with blinding light, but a thick darkness to establish his presence. So it should be no surprise to us to see him then ratify the new covenant with Jesus' blood on the cross using an intense darkness. Satan's hour against Jesus ends at noon. The Father shows up, and all of a sudden, Jesus stops talking. He stops focusing on those around him. In fact, he says very little during those three hours. He cries out the first line of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He then says, I am thirsty because there is one last prophecy that must be fulfilled from Psalm 69. And then at the end of the darkness, he shouts the last line of Psalm 22. He says, it is finished. It is finished. Your English text there in Psalm 22 says, he has done it. But in the Hebrew, there is no object for the verb. So Psalm 22:31 literally reads, it is done. It is finished. It is finished. After that, Jesus commits his spirit to the Father, and he dies. As he hung there during the last three hours of the most excruciating death imaginable, he was meditating on the Old Testament. He was living Psalm 22 as he was dying. It is no coincidence that he began with verse 1 of Psalm 22, and he ended with verse 31 of Psalm 22. So let's pull back the curtain and explore the mind of Christ as he suffered on the cross in our place. Psalm 22 has too many stanzas for us to divide the text accordingly tonight, so I've assigned five headings to this masterpiece, hoping to give us a big picture of such a a weighty division of truth. So first of all, I want you to note the Messiah's problem. The Messiah's problem. His problem becomes clear in the first five verses. He begins in verse 1 with this double cry to God. He shouts, My God, my God! Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? From the start, we know that this psalm is a lament as Jesus hangs at high noon in darkness, as our sins are transferred upon him, and he who knew no sin became sin for us. He cries out in the most personal and passionate way, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Up until now, Jesus has never addressed the Father that way. He has always referred to him as Father or my Father. Just hours earlier, as the nails were slicing through his skin, he cried, Father, forgive them. But now he addresses the Father, not as Father, but as his God, showing the distance between them as he suffers the wrath and bears the judgment for our sins. His problem in this moment, isn't the threat of death or even the scorn of the crowd. It is the abandonment, the separation that he feels from the first member of the Godhead. That broken fellowship he has never experienced at all throughout all of eternity past until now. He cries out, my God, why have you left me? Why are you so far from saving me in the words of my groaning? In other words, my salvation is a long ways away. It's not coming this time, at least not right away. And Jesus knows why. He knows the answer because this was the Father's plan since the beginning to have his son die on a cross and suffer the greatest loss for the greatest gain. He says, oh God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. He says, in the light of the day and and in the darkness as of night, I have no rest and I have no reply from you, God. I know you are here, but you are so far from me. There is no escape this time and God will not deliver me. For the first time, he who shared intimate fellowship with God as God knows how it feels to be abandoned by God. But notice these rhetorical questions of anguish and abandonment 
are not born out of a lack of faith. In verse 3, he says, yet you are holy. Yet you are holy. As he suffers on the cross, his mind focuses on the holiness of God. And he knows that this is the only way for lost sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. It is because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God that our sins deserve an infinitely holy punishment. Jesus knows this is the only way. He must bear the sin that separates us from a holy God. And that holy God must deal with that sin by first separating himself from his son. And so the Messiah finds confidence and trust as he remembers the holiness and the faithfulness of his God. He says, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Because God is holy, he he has always shown himself faithful. Every time, without fail. You aren't going to find anyone with a better track record than God. Those in the past who have trusted him have always, 100% of the time, found God to be faithful. Jesus knows this truth better than anyone. Having spoken with Abraham having spoken with Moses and Isaiah and and so many others, they trusted in the Lord, and, and the Lord never failed them, not once. Now it's Jesus' turn to trust God. So he looks to God and remembers his faithfulness. Verse 5, To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Another word for shame here is the word disappointed. They trusted in God and were not disappointed. Let me ask you this. Have have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever been disappointed in anyone? Has, Has anyone ever let you down? Have you ever depended on someone for something only to have them fall short or betray you or stab you in the back or just lead to some gross, terrible, awful pit of your stomach, terrible disappointment. Has that ever happened to you? I'm pretty sure we have all experienced that at one point or another. Friend, God will never do that. God will never do that. If you trust in him, he will never disappoint you. This God who has never lied, never backpedaled, never failed, If you cry out to him, he will rescue you. There's no maybe about it. There's no might here. God will save you if you cry out to him. Like our Savior as he hung on the cross, you too can gain strength and confidence in the character of God. Whatever your problem might be tonight, consider the complete goodness and faithfulness of God. He has a perfect track record. He will never let you down. Jesus cries these truths about God, back to God in his darkest hour, looking forward to his deliverance. But that doesn't eliminate his problem. As the text continues to demonstrate his intense suffering, bringing us to the next heading, the Messiah's persecution. The Messiah's persecution. Look at verse 6. He says, But I am a worm. And not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. 
was an idiot. Words are hurtful, and it's not empowering to deny or downplay the effects of words. He says, I am a worm. I am the lowest form of life on planet Earth, and I am no longer a man. That is to say, he no longer looks like a man. Isaiah 53 verse 14 says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He didn't even look like a human being anymore as he hangs there, naked, bloody, his beard torn out, his organs exposed. He no longer resembles a man, but the grotesque figure of something else. He says mankind, that's that's the human race, hates him despises him. Verse 7 and 8, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. He says they belittle me with their words and their actions. They make faces and they shake their heads in disgust. And they mock him by turning his own words around from verses 4 and 5 and saying, okay, okay, you know, you say that they who trust in the Lord will be saved because God has done it in the past and he will do it again. And yet God is not saving you. I mean, where is your God now? I mean, if your God is so good and if your God loves you so much, why doesn't he come down and save you? Why doesn't he give you the power to save yourself? Why isn't he delivering you? They say you're trusting in the wrong help. Because your God is not going to save you this time. Look at you. These are the exact same gestures and insults Matthew records for us in chapter 27, verses 39 through 40. Matthew writes, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. You would think that the scribes and elders would know better than to fulfill this poetic prophecy of Psalm 22 so perfectly. But look at what Jesus does in reply. He doesn't turn his attention to men. He doesn't even answer them back. Instead, he keeps his focus on God. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. In other words, you have caused me to trust you from the very beginning, as far back as I can go, before I can remember I have always trusted in you. Since the day I was born, I have trusted in you. And I will continue to trust you, even now in the midst of death. He goes on to say, On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. He takes it a step further, whereas earlier he spoke of God's faithfulness towards those who have trusted in him in the past. Now he speaks of God's faithfulness to himself. It's not just others now. He's saying, no, I have the experience. I can look back in my own life and I can see that you have been faithful. I can see it from the womb. You have been my God. Listen, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words still have the power to hurt you. 
when persecution comes, and it, and, it, and it will, we have been promised persecution. When persecution comes and folks belittle you and mock you for trusting in the Lord, I encourage you, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of God. Instead, remember his faithfulness to others. Remember his faithfulness in your own life and let him take care of the mockers because he will. Jesus says, be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. He calls the maddening crowd a bunch of bloodthirsty animals. Bashan was the fertile farming plateau just east of Jordan. It was where everything appeared to grow bigger and better. Enlightening the mobs of these bulls, he is calling them powerful, senseless, brutish, and dangerous. They encompass him and surround him in triumph. As a prey trapped by predators, suspended on the cross, he can't escape. Verse 13, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. His enemies are fierce and looking to finish the job. With, with violent intensity, their wickedness won't be satisfied until the murder of God's anointed is finished. This is the Messiah's persecution. That's number two. Number three, number three, and perhaps this is the hardest section of the psalm for us to get through. Number three, we have the Messiah's pain. The Messiah's pain, verses 18, or verses 14 through 18, contain the most graphic description of Jesus' suffering on the cross in all of Scripture. The Gospels tell us what happened. Isaiah tells us why it happened. Here we are told how it felt. He says, I am poured out like water. I am poured out like water. That is to say, I have no energy left. I am completely washed out. I am an empty vessel. He is an empty shell of a man, as it takes every ounce of strength within him to raise himself up to catch a breath and then release and fall back down in agony, to then painfully raise himself back up again, take another breath, and release and fall back down. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My bones have been pulled out of their sockets. The pain is excruciating. With every breath, it is painfully clear that his body has become a bag of bones. He goes on to say, my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast, meaning his heart, his soul, his inner man is like a melted candle consumed in the heat of God's wrath against sinners. Concerning this verse, Charles Spurgeon wrote, the fire of almighty wrath would have consumed our souls forever in hell. It was no light work to bear as a substitute the heat of an anger so justly terrible. Church, when God emptied his fury for our sins against his son, he didn't hold anything back. Jesus drank that cup to the dregs. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
for those last three hours of darkness. God did not treat his son like his son. Because at that time, Jesus bore our sins in his body. Jesus paid the price by suffering the penalty for every sin you and I have ever committed against this holy God. Such a price was paid at Calvary. We have here a picture of his physical anguish, but also his emotional and spiritual pain. As the sinless one willingly subjected himself to the intense anger that God has for our sins. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaw. He compares his strength to the dryness of a broken piece of pottery. He is like an old flower pot that crumbles as soon as somebody touches it. His tongue is stuck to the roof of his mouth because all the moisture in his body has left him. He is hanging on by a thread and he knows what's coming next. He says, you lay me in the dust of death. You lay me in the dust of death. The imperfect tense here emphasizes the fact that God is the one doing this. God is doing this to the Son. God not only abandoned him, but he is actively participating in his destruction. Alan P. Ross writes, quote, In the final analysis, if God did not do anything to deliver him, then it was God who was putting him in the grave. End quote. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, He was smitten by God and afflicted. And again in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why? Because his soul has become an offering for guilt. God didn't send his son into the world so he could have a human experience. He sent his son to die in the place of sinners. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived, and he died the death we all deserve. And the Father willed for it to happen because you can't provide the gift of eternal life without first paying for the wages of sin. And that's death. Death. Your sins against a holy God cannot remain unpunished. Someone's got to pay for your crimes against God. And without a perfect substitute, even the best of us still deserves hell. But Jesus, in his perfection, having never sinned his entire life, hung on that tree to bear your sin your sin in his body. It is as though he stood before God as the judge of heaven and asked for a verdict that would punish him instead of you. And remarkably, it pleased the father to make him pay for your crimes instead of you. So that now when the father looks at you, he sees the perfect obedience of Christ. His righteousness has now been accredited to your account. Because your bad account, your terrible credit, was all applied to him already at the cross. On that day, he looked at his son and he saw your sin. He saw your rebellion as he laid his son into the dust of death. Well, at this point, Jesus continues to liken 
those around him to mindless animals. He says, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Some have argued that the alternative reading here is to be preferred. You probably have a footnote at the bottom of the page translating this word pierced as like a lion. Friends, just ignore that. I have to mention it because it's here, because it's on your page. Just ignore it. It's unfortunate that a vow-pointing error of the Masoretic Jews in the Middle Ages could, could cause such a stir, because pierced is a far better translation. And I can give you several reasons why, but I'm not going to go into it tonight. Again, this is, this is stunning, the accuracy of God's infallible and inerrant word as it shines through. As these words are penned centuries before the crucifixion came into being, before thousands of years before Christ would fulfill this prophecy, a thousand years, he says, I can count all my bones. The pain is un- unbearable. They stare and they gloat over me. Their wicked and depraved hearts are drawn to the spectacle. They find sick pleasure in my torture. He says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. According to Roman law, the last possession a condemned man would hold on to was his garment. Here, the soldiers considered him to be as good as dead already. I mean, he's dying. What's he going to do? Is he going to really come down off the cross? Probably not. So they divided his garments and cast lots for them early. It's interesting to note that so many of the little prophetic details that are found here in Psalm 22 were carried out not only by Jesus on the cross, but by his enemies those who were present during the event. In the end, God knew what would happen because he knows all things will happen the way that he plans for them to. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and delivered an incredible sermon. In Acts 2.23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, You made it happen but it was all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew it was going to happen, and beyond that, God planned for it to happen. Friends, no one, no one has suffered like the Lord Jesus has suffered. The problems, the persecutions, the pain you and I have experienced in life, all pale in comparison, all pale in comparison to the sufferings of Christ. When he endured the cross, he carried more than the weight of his broken body. He stood in the place of sinners. So you and I could sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a, a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We owe everything to this Messiah. We owe everything to our Savior for the price that he paid and the promises that we now have in him. We owe it all to this Savior. Number four, we've looked at the Messiah's problem, the Messiah's persecution, and the Messiah's pain. In verses 19 through 21, we see the Messiah's prayer. The Messiah's prayer. The entire psalm is a silent prayer, but these verses crescendo with his final petition. And they act as a turning point for the psalm. He says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Do not, don't don't leave me. Come back. I, I can't stand this sense of distance between us. He cries, O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. That's total destruction. 
deliver me from, from certainty of death. He says, my precious life from the power of the dog. In verse 16, he called the crowd dogs, plural. Now he wants deliverance from the dog, singular, with a definite article, most likely referring to Satan himself or the satanic powers behind their madness. Or maybe he's just referring to death itself. It's hard to tell. It is poetry after all. But he says, save me from the mouth of the lion, from the, from the certain imminence of death. This beast has his mouth open and he's coming for me and I see it coming. And there is no escape. I know that in a matter of moments, I'm going to be lion food. I mean, can you sense the desperation in his voice as he finds himself right on the edge? Just mere moments away from losing consciousness and, and breathing his last breath as a condemned man. When all of a sudden, all of a, like, like a flash of light, his memory of God and his faith in God explodes with this final cry. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is the final scream in the Savior's mind as the chaos and the tempest of paying for our sins gives way to rapturous praise. And, and that is what we have here in the rest of the psalm. Number five, as he finishes his time on the cross, we see the Messiah's praise. The Messiah's praise. Look at, verses, look at verse 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And just in case there was any doubt, the writer of Hebrews quotes this verse in Hebrews chapter 2, proving once again that this is Jesus' experience, not David's. As he hangs there, suffering the horrors and the separation from God and his wrath against sinners, he thinks ahead to the glory that he knows is coming. He knows that in three days, this same God will raise him from the dead. He knows that death's victory is fleeting at best. That God will exalt him to the degree that he has been humbled. And, and will bestow upon him the name that is above every other name. That he will have the name Lord. That he will rule and reign everything for the rest of time. He looks beyond the cross of his death, to the joyful praise that he will share with his brothers in the Lord, those who trust in him, those who believe in him, those who have been brought into right fellowship with God as a result of this sacrifice. He looks ahead to that. He looks ahead to the joy that is set before him, knowing that this is not the end. This is not the end. And this is what he will say to them. This is what he will say to his disciples to those men on the road to Emmaus, to, to, to the other witnesses. This is what he will say moving forward. He will say, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him, he longs for the day when he can worship God for delivering him. He knows that even though God has not rescued him there in that moment because it was necessary for him to die on the cross, he knows that his deliverance is coming. He knows that he is going to walk out of that tomb in three days. And he cannot wait to point back 
When he can say, look, I trusted in God to the utmost. I trusted him to the grave, through the grave, and back. And you can trust him. You can praise him. You can glorify him. And you can enter into his presence because of me. Because I was faithful unto death. And the Lord has done this. He has raised me from the dead. Knowing that he had to die on the cross. Otherwise, there could be no forgiveness for sins. There could be no forgiveness unless he had died. But the Father will not let his Holy One see decay. And we will look at that in more detail this Sunday. He will not let the grave swallow his son for good. God has has seen his affliction. He has heard his petitions. He has heard these silent prayers on the cross. And this faithful God will once again prove himself to be fully faithful. Jesus continues with what he knows. He will tell the disciples after his resurrection. He says, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. This great congregation, as opposed to the congregation of of verse 22, probably refers to the great assembly of heaven. As redemption is accomplished and God the Son returns in triumph, the Father will praise the Son. And the Son will praise the Father. And we shall join in the chorus as those whose hearts will live forever. He goes on. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That's a promise. Folks, that is a promise. As the good news of what God has done through Christ on the cross goes out, people will act in faith. And become true worshipers when they hear the good news. That's a promise. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. The angry crowd, the mocking unbeliever, the hateful tyrant, the evil one himself. They may all win a few battles here and there, here and now. But but God will put an end to all wars. He is the sovereign king and he alone rules heaven and earth. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even those who have everything, even the richest and the most powerful of this life, those who have everything will realize that they have nothing without the Savior. Like the afflicted in verse 26, they too shall come and feast on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they do, they will be satisfied. They will be satisfied, never to hunger again, never to thirst again, never to desire more, because there is no more. They they can never go beyond being satisfied in Christ, because he offers total satisfaction, complete satisfaction, more than we could ever possibly imagine or hope for. They will bow the knee and worship and humbly approach the throne of grace like everyone else. He says, Even the one who could not keep himself alive. The rich man will die like everyone else. He will. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You will not live forever. Even if they cryogenically freeze your corpse, you're still dead. And you're not coming back. Not on your own, at least. It is destined for every man to die once. 
and then face judgment. We will all go down to the dust. But those who trust in this crucified Savior for their salvation will not remain in the grave, but be immediately ushered into the presence of the one who suffered so much so that they might be saved. Verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. It shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's us, folks. That's us. We are those people. We were not alive when this was written. We were not alive when the cross happened, when the cross of Christ occurred. We are those people who were not born yet. And yet we are also those people of a future generation who are now telling the story, who are now passing this information on. And it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. This didn't die out in the first century. The cross of Christ is more than relevant today. The cross of Christ is powerful and it is still saving men and women. It is still pulling people out of the flames. It is still reaching into the grave and pulling people out to safety. The power of Christ's cross is just as strong today as it ever was. And we have this message to tell. We have this story to share. We have the power of God unto salvation in our hearts and on our lips. And we are the ones that are making this proclamation. We are the one that have been called to to tell everyone we can. Tell everyone around us this good news that Jesus Christ came and died in the place of sinners. This is our job. And we are here in this text. We are in Psalm 22. We are that generation that follows. Scripture says, We shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. And what will we say? That He has done it. He has done it. He's done it. It's finished. It is finished. It is done. And with these final words, Jesus commits his spirit into the Father's care and dies. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Since Jesus ended his earthly life by quoting the last verse of this psalm, it means that he did not die in despair. Rather, he died in triumph knowing that the atonement was perfect and fully accepted by God, and therefore that countless future generations of sinful people would be saved because of it. Listen, there are only two types of people in this world. Those whose sins are covered by the blood of Christ and those who aren't. To the Christian, I want to remind you, we have a Savior who knows what it means to suffer who loves you and sympathizes with you. And he is not far off. He is here. He is here. And and he has triumphantly conquered death so you can enjoy life with him forever. Whatever you're going through, whatever it is, whatever your circumstance, turn to the cross. Look to the cross of Christ. Look at what he has accomplished for you on your behalf, what you could never accomplish for yourself. Thank Him for the salvation that He has given you. Look forward to the future hope that we have when you will praise Him in the assembly, 
when you will praise with him to the Father and you will give glory to them both for what the Godhead has done for you. Christian, never forget the cross. Never forget the sacrifice of Christ. Constantly look to him. Constantly tune your heart to the suffering Savior who loved you and died for you in order to conquer the grave and give you eternal life in his name. Remember the cross. Remember your Savior. And to the unbeliever, I have to ask, in light of this text, in light of what we have just read, what makes you think you will escape the wrath to come? What, what makes you think that you will somehow be exempt or excused from the wrath that is coming from God against sinners? If this holy God refused to spare his own son, but crushed him to save those who would believe in him, what hope do you have? What hope could you possibly have apart from Christ? Soon this suffering Savior who died but is no longer dead will return to judge both the living and the dead. Only those who have trusted in him for salvation will be saved. Don't be like the dogs or the bulls or the lions. Don't reject this Messiah who has promised to never turn away anyone who comes to him. Trust in the Lord. Believe that this Jesus is more than a man who died. He is the God-man sent to die in the place of sinners. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it is finished. He has done it. And confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord of it all. Then the power of Jesus' blood sacrifice will be applied to you as well. When the Father looks at you, he will no longer see your sin, but Jesus' perfect obedience. So don't run away from the Savior. Don't turn from the cross of Christ. Turn from the sin that put him there. Turn from your sin. Confess your sin before God. Repent of your sin. Seek his forgiveness, and he will gladly give it to you. Come to the Lord and live. I don't know how many hours you have left. I don't know how long you can live in this isolation and and distance from God. Stop it. Come to God today. Come to him. Accept this invitation for free life in his name, for, for the gift of eternal life. You don't have to die. You will die once, but you don't have to die twice. If you believe in your heart, and if you confess with your mouth, if you follow this Savior, if you deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Him, He will save you. He will do it. He will give you eternal life in His name. You can worship Him. You can serve Him. You can enjoy sweet fellowship with Him from this day forward forever and forevermore. Or you can die in your sins. You can die as a worm and suffer the eternal punishment and anguish of hell and separation and wrath for the rest of eternity. Don't be a fool.
Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Seek his forgiveness and he will gladly give it to you. Turn to the cross where all who come will sing love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for crushing your son. Thank you for not sparing your own son. Lord, thank you for sacrificing him the way that you did for us, lost sinners, with nothing worthy to bring. Lord, your love is amazing. Your love is incredible. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would live in light of this reality, live in light of this truth, that we would honor you, that we would serve you, that we would think twice about following after the sin that put your precious son on the cross. Lord, I pray that we would be more like Jesus. I pray that in our suffering, in our persecutions, and in our pain, that we would focus on your holiness, your character, your faithfulness to save us, to deliver us. Maybe not now, maybe not in the moment, but that ultimately you will, and that every promise you have made in Scripture will come to pass. Lord, I pray that that would fill our our hearts and our minds this evening. And moving forward, that we would never forget this precious truth that you are holy and you are faithful. You are faithful. You are faithful to your son and you will be faithful to us. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone who has not placed their faith and their trust in you, if they have not been born again, born from above by your spirit, I pray that you would pull the blinders off of their eyes tonight that you would unstop their ears if you've already started working by your spirit in their hearts to stir them and to bring them to a place of of repentance. I pray that you would pray that you would make that happen, Lord, that you would bring it to full completion and that there'd be no doubt in their mind or in anybody else's that you have gloriously saved them. God, save, rescue, deliver lost sinners. Lord, we love you. We give you praise and we give you glory and we we long for the day when our faith will be sight. We long for the day when we will see you face to face and we will stand before our precious Savior who died on this cross in our place. Lord, we love you. We give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory that you are due and more because you are worthy of it all and so much more. In your name, amen.